Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got Carrie Gallant with me, and we're going to talk imposter syndrome, a subject that we've discussed a fair few times in Grow CFO, but we've got a real deep expert on the subject today, so I think we're going to get some really good insights. Carrie, welcome to the Grow CFO show. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me, Kevin. I'm delighted to be here. So, Carrie, imposter syndrome. How did you get into that subject area? <laughs> oh, that's a great, a great question. And I think everyone listening to this podcast can relate on some level to have felt at some point in your career or their career, and I did as well, somewhat of an imposter. Like, do I really know what I'm doing? Am I the right person? Who am I to be doing this? These questions that we might be asking ourselves. So, you know, throughout my career, I've been seeing that. And as I've been working with professionals, leaders, executives around their careers and negotiating and navigating conversations, especially negotiation, I have noticed that when those moments come up for people, that that's often a place where they might hold themselves back from putting their hand up for an opportunity, believing that they have what it takes, feeling those imposter feelings and not knowing what to do with them. Should I listen to them? Should I go ahead? anyway. Along the way, Kevin, one day about three or four years ago, I had an opportunity to share the stage with Dr. Valerie Young, who is the author of Secret Thoughts of Professional Women, How Capable People Can Feel Imposter Syndrome. So she is the preeminent expert following the two researchers that have first identified the imposter phenomenon. And Valerie has been entering into what she calls education interventions. So trainings and now coaching as well, others on dealing with imposter syndrome, imposter feelings, the phenomenon, whatever you call it. It doesn't really matter. The reality is the experience that any of us can have and how that impacts us. And then also for those of us who may not relate to that, but our team members, I guarantee you that somebody on your team has probably at some point or other felt this or experienced imposter feelings and may or may not be holding themselves back from opportunities. They might be holding themselves back from their performance. So it it can have impacts on all kinds of levels. So fast forward to about a year or so ago, and I learned that Valerie was offering opportunities to become licensed associates. And so I jumped on that chance because I wanted to dovetail that to bring that level of expertise into what I was already doing with clients and what I was already sensing. So I was able to dive more deeply into it and continue to do so with her and the group at the Imposter Syndrome Institute. So I'm now a licensed associate and bringing that to organizations and to my individual clients as well. Brilliant. Brilliant. So we're talking to finance leaders. Certainly in Grow CFO, we find that that transition from head of finance, Mm -hmm. VP finance to CFO is the big place that imposter syndrome kicks in. In fact, we've done a few surveys with people around the what were your six or seven biggest challenges when you took on your first CFO role? And the results come back that number one, number two will be, and they flip between people, imposter syndrome, lack of confidence. Yeah. So yeah. we know this is a big issue. 
you mentioned there professional women. Now, mm. is this a professional woman's issue? Is this an everybody's issue? Oh, Kevin, I'm so glad you asked that question. And here's why, because Valerie gets asked this question a lot. And we, we've talked to her about that. And she's actually reissuing a new version, the second edition of the book, which now includes and men in the title, because she did not have any control over the title when it was published back in, you know, I guess, I think she published that in the in the 90s. And so big publishers will often take over the designing of the cover and the naming of the book. So she didn't have control over the title, and she wouldn't have named it that because she was finding and has over the 30 years that she's been continuing to do this, that it's not just limited to women. And in fact, a lot of her work has also identified how this impacts various cultures, various different employees, different people in the workplace, not just women, and certainly not just white women, for example, people of color, men and women experience it from different cultures as well, not just North American. I know that you're in the UK. So also in Europe, you're obviously identifying it through gross CFO as an issue. So to answer to your question, it is not just about professional women. That was the initial title of the book, and that is now being updated to reflect the reality of what is out there. Not only that Dr. Young has experienced and identified through her 30-year career, but also what others have identified as well. So this is very much a DEI issue as well in terms of what's holding back various groups from perhaps individuals who are underrepresented in the workplace can often experience imposter feelings, imposter syndrome, and that critical place that you've just identified when we make leaps in our career, especially when we're making big changes, which from the VP or head of finance level to the CFO, it is a big change because it's quite a different responsibility area, quite a different look at things. And so it's natural, really, that we might experience those types of feelings. And then it's what we do with them that is critical so that we're not holding ourselves back, but also from an organizational perspective, we're identifying where there might be some places where we might help to improve and shore up even in the onboarding process, that can be part of that. Or what are we doing to ensure that people have the tools and resources that they need in order to be successful? Now, we talk imposter syndrome. You're talking about feelings there. Mm-hmm. Let's unpack imposter syndrome a little bit. What are those feelings typically that are they the symptoms of it? Right. Well, I I mentioned a few of them already that some people can feel like they're not in the right place or they're not the right person, or they may feel like, who am I to be in this role? Or I don't have what it takes. So some of this is our inner voice. And there's lots of places where we might have picked that up along the way, whether we're young from uh, societal messages, particularly for people who are underrepresented in the workplace or in the particular role, for example, that can be a place where we might pick up those messages or that internal voice. I just want to pause for a second. You picked up that I have called it feelings and experiences and syndrome. We can use the different words. The issue with can be with the word syndrome that some people may take issue with, especially in the psychological research field where syndrome is seen as a DSM or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Psychology. They don't own the word syndrome, but it is a classification in the DSM. And imposter syndrome is not a classification in the DSM. So we can separate out that. However, there is a dictionary definition of syndrome, which identifies a pattern syndrome really being a pattern of behavior, thoughts, and so on that are affecting the person. So we can, I use the words interchangeably, and certainly 
my training comes from the Imposter Syndrome Institute. And Dr. Young and her colleagues have specifically named it that for very good reasons. But I want to acknowledge that for many, they're uncomfortable with the word syndrome. And we can actually take it down into the level of, of feelings as well as the experience of it. And that's really the critical part of it is if someone is experiencing imposter feelings or any kind of experience, it's very real for them. It's very real for them. Yes, very real. How do you think it typically shows up in the way you approach your day-to-day activities in the job? Mm -hmm. I think it can show up many ways that a person might be making excuses for themselves and thinking, oh, I'm not ready for that. Or, oh, I just need to... So perfectionism can be a way in which it can manifest. I just need another training or I just need to do this extra little bit of work before I submit my report. So we might be delaying things because we just need to polish it up a little bit, not feeling that we're ready for certain things. So it can show up in that way from a practical level. People can feel that they're going to be found out that I'm the classic. I'm afraid I'm going to be found out that I'm a fraud. Now, I mean, Here's the thing, though, the interesting thing is that we know that even high net worth celebrities will acknowledge that they have had that experience. Nelson Mandela, Oprah, Lady Gaga, I think as well, and somebody else who just came out recently and acknowledged. And here's the thing, they're successful anyway, right? So we can be successful despite these feelings to acknowledge that they exist and then move on. That's part of what we talk about is like, we want to talk about identifying it, normalizing it. This is a a very real thing. And then let's figure out how we can move ahead. And that doesn't necessarily mean we all have to come out with real bravado all of a sudden and say, yes, I can do this. That's not necessarily how we want to be leaders or just show up as leaders, but rather just acknowledge that this is something that you're experiencing in and it can be normal. And okay, what do we do now? Where can we look instead? What do we do now? Well, I'd say that one of the things we want to do first is acknowledge that this can be very real, that it can be normal, especially when we're in new environments, new situations, new communities, where we might feel a little awkward. And and even just to normalize that and considering the source, really, of where it might be coming from. So maybe you heard messages when you were younger about, I have to get an A or I have to get an A plus, or I have to be perfect. So we might have historical messages, whether it's our family, whether it's at school, or some other place that we might have received messages like that. So, or we might have had early messages about things like girls aren't good at math. Now, this is a gendered issue, but it is one that's still pervasive in many people's thinking, maybe because they've inherited it from somewhere, or they actually heard it. Or some cultures have heard that they're supposed to be good at math. So there's a flip side of things. We can think that we might have to behave or to show up or succeed in certain areas because of messages that we heard. And that can affect our confidence in ourselves. So that we can see that we might have a gap in confidence between someone who didn't experience those kinds of things. And so we can think about how might they do it. If we don't feel confident ourselves, we might ask ourselves, well, what would a confident person do here? If I felt confident, what might I do next? So that could be a a quick way of flipping the switch internally. I like that. Mm -hmm. If I felt confident, what would I do next? That's a powerful question to ask yourself. 
And Kevin, it's also one we can ask others too. If you're a leader, for example, and you sense that there's someone on your team who might be holding themselves back. And if you get into a one-on-one, I recommend a one-on-one with these types of conversations, at least at first, is to explore. So what's holding you back? Just an open question like that. What's stopping you from this particular situation? Maybe it's they're holding back on delivering a report. So an open question first And then maybe even so if they say, oh, I'm just not feeling confident that I have what it takes, or if they admit something like that. And I know that that can be a big thing for someone to admit, especially to their leader, but maybe you're a peer or or whomever, but you can always ask that question around, well, if you were feeling confident, what would you do? And then Mm -hmm. that can help us get into action. Yeah. And that's a really interesting part of this conversation to acknowledge that we're not just talking here to people who might be feeling imposter syndrome, if you're a leader of a team, one of the things you should be doing is spotting people in your team that are potentially suffering from it. Yeah. What sort of things would you be looking out for, Carrie? Well, I guess coming back to what we were talking about earlier, part of it is someone underperforming, for example, or are they holding back on having a sense that they're holding back on something? Maybe they're holding back on saying something. Or do you notice that somebody is perhaps more isolated on the team than others? We have as humans, because we are, that's the thing that we all share, is we're all humans. And as humans, we have this natural, deep need for belonging. It's very unusual. In fact, we can talk about the DSM again if we want, (laughs) about where somebody might not have any need to belong anywhere. But let's leave that aside for the moment. But we all have a sense of wanting to belong. And that sense of belonging is what fosters confidence. So if I know that I'm part of this team, if I know that I'm accepted here, I am more likely to risk, take risks for things that I might not think I'm as good at yet. I might take risks to try and risk falling flat on my face if I feel like I'm part of something. So we can look for areas where we might think that people don't feel belonging. We might have taken a survey in our organization that might show up that when you do surveys and somebody say, well, I don't feel like there's a real team atmosphere here. So I don't think we can necessarily isolate imposter syndromes or feelings from everything else, right? Because it's all connected at the end of the day, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I think that Peter Drucker said years ago, we still see how many of these things play out in the individuals. Yeah, I think there's an interesting thing here in terms of recruiting somebody into a role. I'd rather recruit somebody into a role that had the potential to do it than somebody who necessarily ticked every box and had 100% of the skills necessary to Mm -hmm. do it. Because you recruit that latter person, and I think there's a potential for them to get bored very quickly. You recruit the former person, the person with potential, then there's loads of room for them to develop to build new skills, to go for a level of mastery and things, and to potentially enjoy learning throughout their tenure in a job. At the beginning, somebody like that is bound to feel a little bit unconfident because you'd be asking to do things they haven't done before, asking to do things for the first time. So I think if you're the type of manager that I would be in those situations, looking at potential and future ability, then Mm -hmm. looking out for those symptoms we've just talked about and managing them in the right way is a really, really important yeah. skill to have. 
I, I totally agree. I think being able to see where the potential is that somebody has that they might not have tapped into yet and giving them and helping them identify and helping them resource, be resourced, right? We can be successful when we're trying new things, when we're resourced. So if I wanted to enter, well, Kayla, I'm looking at, I just got a new gravel bike this year. So that allows me to ride on gravel roads, kind of in between a mountain bike and a road bike. So it's much faster than my mountain bike. So I can do most of the things I can do on my mountain bike, except climb some hills. My point is this, I'm going to be entering a Grand Fondo race this year. So if I start from nothing and say, I'm going to go race this Grand Fondo, but I don't have a bike or I don't have the right gears on my bike, or I don't have water going out with water on that because the Grand Fondo gravel Fondo is unsupported. So it's not like you get water thrown at you on the road, the way you do in a road race, you have to pack it in. So you have to be resourced. So I'm using this as an analogy because I always coach when I'm working with somebody who's looking to make that kind of level leap and negotiating a promotion or looking for a new job. I always talk about something that is often not thought about by many when they're going into negotiations, what resources do you need in order to be successful in this role? And by the way, that is an amazing question to be asking in a recruitment for a candidate to ask is what resources do I need to be successful? Ask it of themselves and then also ask it even in the interview or especially during the negotiation, navigation conversation and continue to be thinking about that. From a manager's perspective, it's the same question. What do they need in order to be successful here? Do we have that here? How can I help them get that? So that if we want to shore up people's ability to move from A to B, we're helping them figure that out. Versus the old days, I know when I became a lawyer with the the strategy for sending somebody into court those days was just sink or swim. You learned to cut your teeth by failing extravagantly in front of a judge versus one. I was in the middle there. So I ended up working with a senior lawyer who was great. He told me exactly what I needed to be prepared for. And I was able to go and do that. So I felt more successful going in. I felt more confident. And guess what? I did better because he helped me prepare versus another lawyer. I didn't get that preparation. So I really didn't know what I was going up against. So I was surprised. We don't want people to be so surprised that they will fail in front of us. Yeah. I think that question you frequently get in an interview that causes silence for some people. That Do you have any questions for us? Says the interviewer. Well, that question about what resources do I need to be successful can open up a whole additional conversation. And I think, remember, an interview is two-way. The employer is choosing whether you're suitable for the job but you're also choosing whether the organization is suitable for you to work for. And culture, how the workplace is, what values does that organization hold? How do they support you as a person? In fact, that's how do they support people in general? Yes. Are big, big questions you need to ask. Yes, absolutely. 100% agree. So unpacking that going for a new job bit a little bit more, people going for promotions. This feeling of not being good enough, not having the right skills, oh, people with me don't get jobs like that, must hold a lot of people back from actually applying in the first place. Yes, it does, actually. And there's research that has shown 
that for women, many women will hold themselves back from applying for a role unless they feel they have 90 to 100% of the qualifications. So when you think about a job description that's listing about, usually most job descriptions will list the top five and then they'll list a whole bunch of others. Many women won't apply unless they feel they have all of them. Where now this is research, so of course we're we're talking about the bell curve. So we're not talking about everybody, but we're talking about the average respondents will not apply. Whereas men typically will apply if they have between forty and sixty percent of the qualifications. And as an actual fact, here's the reality: when you dig underneath it, the vast majority, most almost, I don't know if there's an exact figure, but I would say, and I've heard this from other recruiters and managers as well, that when they post a job description, really it's the top three that are listed, that are the most important, or at least if you're writing a job description well, that's what's going to be the most important and the most critical for deciding whether somebody gets through the gate to the interview, if you like. And so start there, look at those three, and then see what else, how else can I relate the rest of them? So it's just an example. And it also has shown up in people of other cultures who feel like they're underrepresented in a work environment, perhaps in an industry, they may also take themselves out because they're also judging themselves and thinking and believing. And there's some reality to this because of the past that they have to do it that much better. Women, people of color have often said this, that I have to do the job twice as good as a white male. And so if that's a feeling that they have, that can also hold them back from them putting themselves forward. So again, you said it was a two-way street and I 100% agree with you. And this whole conversation about how do we get the right people into our workplace when we're recruiting is also a two-way street. How are they perceiving this job description? Who am I leaving out by the way I'm wording the top three in particular. So just as an example, back in the 90s as well, a police force that I won't name, is not mine right now, but had advertised and was saying that it was not able to recruit from a diverse culture because no one was applying. No one was applying for it. So they were good. They had a mostly white male force, but they were saying, well, no one's applying. So what can we do? But when you look at where they were posting the job descriptions, It was in the major newspapers that many cultures were not going to when they were looking. So as soon as they started to advertise in the community newspapers, they found applicants from all different cultures and genders applying as well. And that led to them being able to have a more diverse force. So we can see how that two-way street can actually feed into those ideas that, oh, it's not, I don't belong, or that's not a place for me, oh, they'll never accept me, et cetera, et cetera. We're talking there about maybe applying for promotion, applying for a job, must extend further into any sort of negotiation. If you're not careful, you go at that negotiation from a very low starting point. Yes, it's true, Kevin. It's true. So in that particular case, what would you recommend to people to make them feel worth more? Well, it's related to what we just talked about in terms of applying for a job as well, is anytime we're feeling like we're, we don't have it, is to go back and actually look at the facts, unpack that, like, we have the feelings, and so we want to acknowledge them, even just to normalize them to ourselves, and then go and look at the actual facts for yourself, look at your strengths, Look at your previous successes. As a negotiator, like we talked earlier about somebody going from 
head of finance into a CFO role, now all of a sudden their negotiations are very different. They're negotiating with the board of directors. They're negotiating externally with higher level providers. They're negotiating with the CEO directly. And so think about, go back and look at your track record and remember where your successes were, what your strengths are. Maybe even use an assessment to remind yourself of where your strengths are. If you've done assessments before in the past, maybe it's worth revisiting them. Oh yeah, right. I've got these strengths. I bring those into this negotiation. I bring those into this promotion that I would like. And then you can talk about it from that way. When we can look at the facts, it tends to ground things more. When we're feeling things like imposter. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking about strengths and tests. Are there any particular tests that you recommend? Well, there's so many. (laughs) I use a few in my own practice. And by the way, the Imposter Syndrome Institute is in the process of developing an assessment tool that can be used, especially with teams in terms of identifying where people score out in the five competence types, for example, because that's where we often feel that we lack the competence. So identifying which of the five competence areas you're strong in. And that can help with teams as well in terms of identifying where somebody tends to lean in their competent strength. Others that I use include strengths finders. It's a good tool for identifying a person's core strengths or what they call talents. So where do you tend to lean to? If you develop them, these are areas. And it's the idea behind strengths finders. And the other one I like to use, which is via character strengths, is when you are using these strengths you're feeling more fulfilled, more happier, and you tend to like what you're doing more. And so the more we like what we do, the more we do it and the better we tend to get at it. And so that's kind of knowing from a self-knowledge perspective where your strengths are. And so we're probably going to see a few that are going to show up globally for people who are going to lean towards the CFO role, like strategy in strengths finders, analytical perhaps might show up in the top strengths area. But there might be something else that might show up that if it's not fulfilled in the work environment, we want to ensure that you're getting it somewhere else. Like if you're one of the top five strengths might be an appreciation for beauty, for example, that's one of them in the via character strengths. So how does that relate to being a CFO? Well, it could, because maybe it's about elegant solutions. Mm, yeah. So one of my clients had that profile and he said, how do I bring that into my role as a CFO? And we talked about that. And well, where do you look? How do you negotiate? How do you find solutions to problems? And that's where he saw the connection with that particular instrument and how he was able to leverage that in his work with his team. So I like those because they can really help to surface different things. Because if we're in a role and none of our top strengths are being met, it's really challenging. doesn't mean it's absolutely the wrong role. It's like, okay, well, then where are we going to match that for you in terms of where you're getting that from? And what does the role require? So if the role really needs somebody to be strategic and strategic is way down on the bottom for them, then maybe it's something they get through their team. Maybe their strength is leading the team and they get it from somewhere else. Like they have somebody on their team that represents that. So we can use that in different ways to shore up our diversity on our team, if you will, so that we're getting robust decisions. We're moving forward in in, uh, productive ways towards the results. I personally love StrengthsFinder. Yeah. And actually, I was running a a module on a future CFO program and Grow CFO just yesterday. And oh, cool. this particular module, I always mention StrengthsFinder. We're talking about fast-tracking your development towards the yes. CFO role. 
And I'm sort of, sort of saying to folk, well, what sort of CFO do you want to be? What sort of role are you after? Do you actually understand your own strengths mm. and how the sort of role you should be looking for to make use of these strengths and encouraging people yeah. to, to go do it? But the other one that we use in Grow CFO, we've got the Grow CFO competency framework. Okay. We've got nine, we've identified nine competencies for a finance leader. CFO. Fantastic. And in each of the nine competencies, there are five skills. So you can go and you can assess yourself against all 45 skills and you get a report back and it compares you to the rest of your peer group. So thinking back to imposter syndrome on that one, mm-hmm. you've got a piece of paper in front of you. You're talking about look for evidence that you're good enough. Yeah, well, there you are. The competency framework assessment tells you against these 45 particular skills where you are against the rest of your peer group. It probably shows you that you aren't particularly lacking against the average. Yeah, it may very well show that. And for some, it will show perhaps a disappointing result because they may not see themselves in that peer group now. And so the question then becomes, well, where might you look for a role that leverages your strengths? Yeah. So their strengths might be over in one category and they might find, oh, I don't have what it takes in this category. And so that, again, can be a place where somebody might take themselves out of the picture and say, ah, it's not for me. I'm not the right person or I'm not. This isn't the right environment for me. I like to question it and say, hmm, let's test the assumption. Let's take a look. Is there something where can we look to find perhaps it's an organization? Maybe instead of looking in banking, you might look in nonprofit for example, you might find the better match or the better that will lean into your individual strengths from the CFO competency schedule, as well as strengths finders and bring those two together. And when we have the imposter syndrome competency strengths framework, dovetailing that can also help. So we're using them as tools. They're not the be all and the end all. The one that I'd give an example of when I'm talking to our future CFOs is say, look, when I took this, my score in the competency that's around fundraising, mergers and acquisitions is I score about zero on there because I've never, ever done a fundraise. I've never been involved in a merger or an acquisition other than being on the receiving end of one after it's taken place. Am I bothered? Nope, because I'm never going to work in that area. Right. (laughs) And that's exactly right, Kevin. It's like, yeah. it's like identifying what makes sense for the era that a person wants to go into. Yeah. One thing I've heard of being used in, in this area is to keep a success journal. Is that something you'd recommend? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love this. I actually call it a bank vault of value. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the same idea. It's the same idea. I just like the bank vault idea because it's also related to the financial rewards too, right? At the end of the day. But the idea too is, is that we all have value. Bank vault of value, a success journal. Yeah, it's just keeping track of your successes, keeping track of when, well, I mean, so most people will have their performance reviews. And so that's a standardized way in which an organization is actually keeping track of your success journal. But I encourage people to keep their own journal so that when those conversations happen, you can bring out for yourself and even for your leader, the person you're having that conversation with and say, well, actually, here's some other things that I was able to do. It's a place where you can go in and say, oh, yeah, I can take that story or that 
event that happened or that great feedback I got from somebody who said, I really like how you did this. Like just keep, it may sound inconsequential, even the small things. So there, it serves two purposes. One, what I just said is you can use it when you're in your performance conversations or you're going for a new job to remind yourself of all the things that you bring to the table and you can use it to craft those stories that you might be sharing in an interview or in your performance reviews. The second part that I think is actually even more important, going back to where we're talking about imposter syndrome, is anytime you're feeling down or you're feeling those niggly, not really sure if this is the right opportunity for me, I'm not really sure I've got what it takes, go check out your success journal, your bank vault of value, and use that as a way to remind you of all the things that you do bring to the table. That is brilliant advice. Carrie, you're in Vancouver in Canada. Mm-hmm. I am. Now, our audience is scattered across the globe. We've got a big audience in Europe. We've got a big audience in the USA. So Carrie in Canada, but how do we find out more about this stuff, Carrie? Because I'm sure we've piqued the interest of a lot of people today. Yeah. Well, I would love to get in conversations with people. I'm on LinkedIn regularly. You can find me. You just Google my name. It will should come up in the top page. So I'm in LinkedIn and I can be happy to give you my LinkedIn URL for that. I also regularly contribute to my newsletter called The Confident Negotiator on LinkedIn. And so I talk about things like negotiating difficult conversations, navigating for a promotion, navigating the new job once you get in. It's an ongoing negotiation as well as imposter syndrome. So I talk about how imposter syndrome, how it relates, how it affects people. And so that's the major way I would say that I can connect with people. So there'll be a link to Carrie's LinkedIn profile in the show notes. You mentioned difficult conversations there. I'm reminded of a workshop that we did together with Catherine Clark. It must be about three months ago now. That's when we first decided we're going to record this podcast. Yes, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well because there's a lot of really good stuff in that we were talking specifically about how do you go have a difficult conversation with somebody and let's face it we've been talking here imposter syndrome you've spotted that in a member of your team you now need to go talk about it to that member of the team that is a difficult conversation that's right yeah. And if I can also mention, Kevin, one of the other ways is I have a book called Conversation Secrets for Tomorrow's Leaders that talks about 21 ways in which you can have those conversations and boost your own success with having challenging conversations. Yeah. And I was just going to mention that book, actually. Yeah. There'll be a link to the book in the show notes. Yeah. Excellent. Carrie, that has been amazing. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for Hugely having me. for being a guest on this week's Grow CFO show. Thank you. It's delightful to chat with you, Kevin.